It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, April 11th, 2012. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is to my right. Hello, Deb. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Looking forward to a good discussion. Good to be with you as well. And uh, uh, this discussion is going to be different than one we've had in the last um, few weeks. This is a this is sort of a random, sporadic. Right. We sometimes call this the listener smorgasbord. Uh, this we, is the ADD-friendly version. Yeah, because we're going to talk about a lot of different topics yeah. uh, taken from questions that have been sent in from our listeners over the last several, really several months. It's been a while since we've done one of these. We've done them often in the past, but... Uh, it, it's been a while, and we're going to try to do a little catching up here tonight, deal with some questions that listeners have sent in. Uh, and sometimes a, a question might justify a whole program. Sometimes we just take pot shots at it like we're going to do tonight. We've got five questions. Anthony, well, actually, we got eight questions because one of them is a multiple, multiple choice. Part. Okay. Yeah. Anthony's behind the controls. Anthony, you don't think we're going to make it through. Yeah, I don't know. I was looking at it this uh, this evening, and I was thinking those are, some of those were pretty big questions, but... Um, Hopefully we can make progress on all of them. All right. All right so we'll just dive in. We're not going to read them all uh, ahead of time. But these were submitted at questions at collegeview.com by listeners who had uh, honest questions about th- certain things in the Bible. And we welcome those questions at any time. Some of our questions are uh, contain enough material that we can do a whole hour on them. Others like these require just, you know, maybe a short together. period of time. I mean, we might we'll, could have spent more time on some of these, but we're going to we try to do it. We welcome all of them. Yeah. And we, if we get one. We save it up. We, I've got a stack of questions that get sent in, and when we get some that we think we can make a program out of, we do it. We're going to do that tonight. Right, now, remember, oh, remember, ahead. we send out our questions early on, uh, about midday on Thursday, and we would we sent these out to our update list earlier today, and start requesting feedback. We like early feedback, and that's it's the helpful. benefit. If you put you submit your question, then we use it on a program. Hundreds of people see the question and can help with yeah. the answer. And so we've got some email responses. Uh, we're looking for more. We're also looking for comments in the chat room. But again, as always, we tell you if you're not getting our update, just send us an email to questions at collegeu.com and say put me on the list. If you've been asked to be on the list and you're not getting it, check the spam folder. That's right, because we we don't purge our our, our list. Okay. All right, so here we go. We're, not, we're just going to deal with these questions one at a time. This first, question, this first set of questions comes from Stephen, and he had several questions he wanted to ask. We, we've got these three from him tonight. Number one from Stephen, is there such a thing as righteous anger? Would it be a sin to be angry with our brother because of a sin they committed, or should we be angry at the sin and not the sinner? You know, Jacob, that's a common expression. I mean, we hear that all the time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, be angry at, at the sin, but... Don't be angry at the sinner. Yeah, I may I may uh, cross some people up here, but I'm not sure that's really a biblical concept. Yeah, well, that, be angry at the sin, not at the sinner, is not. Love the sin or hate the sin is biblical. Right. But yes, I, I think agree it, with you uh, because 
we should have the, the attitudes of God, and the, and the scriptures frequently describe God as angry at sinners. Indignation towards those who are unrighteous. Yeah. You, what verse do you got up? I've got Second uh, Corinthians chapter, or no, sorry, uh, Hebrews chapter 20, uh, 10, verse 27. It talks about a, fear, a certain fearful looking for the judgment and fiery, fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversary. So God's going to have this fiery indignation when he... Uh, takes uh, vengeance on the world. All right. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Yeah. Now, this is the King James rendering, and some uh, the with the wicked expression is, is an added by the translators. Uh, some versions just say God judges the righteous and is angry or has indignation every day. Yeah. But the King James says he's angry with the wicked every day. I, I, I looked at several places in the old testament there there was a long list i couldn't even write them all down but notice a few places where it where it clearly says that god was angry with people uh not just angry with their sin in well, the old those testament, are about the times when god told uh, moses to step back he's going to take take the israelites out yeah several times he did that in deuteronomy thirty-one seventeen. here's an example i'm just going to give you a couple examples then my anger shall be kindled against them, not against their sin. My anger will be kindled against them yeah. uh, in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. Uh, is one example. Uh, here's another it's from Second Samuel chapter six, verse seven. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. You remember when yeah. Uzzah touched yeah. the ark of the yeah. covenant? It, but it doesn't say he was angry with the sin of Uzzah. It says yeah. he was angry. Uh, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. So. God is angry with sinners. Now, he that doesn't preclude his love of sinners and no. his willingness to forgive and, and provide salvation to sinners who repent. And so the idea that that is sometimes expressed, be angry at sin but not the sinner, is not a, a, a true biblical expression. I don't think. I, I believe you're right. The concept, hate the sin, love the sinner, right. is, is a true one. But you can be angry at someone you love. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, those are not mutually exclusive emotions. Yeah, God displays it. Jesus displayed it as well. He called the Pharisees generations of a generation of vipers. I don't know that he didn't call them a, a, a generation of sin. He called. He was talking to the sinner. He said they're a generation of vipers. He was upset and angry with them, purging the temple. I don't think that was the result of someone who just, well, oh, okay, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter. He was mad at them for what they were doing. The first part of Stephen's question asked, is there such a thing as righteous anger? I think that might be the easiest question we'll deal with tonight. And the answer to that is clearly yes, because Jesus was. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, they were, was one of the episodes, Mark 3 is one of those episodes where they were trying to hang him for uh, healing on the Sabbath day. Yeah. And in Mark 3, verse 5, it says, when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Jesus had anger. Okay. Now, Jesus never sinned. Therefore, that was a righteous anger, not a sinful anger. All right. Good. Um, And then uh, we would add also Ephesians 4.26, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. It's possible to be angry without sin. That verse says clearly. So uh, in in answer to all those things, uh, yes. Now, one thing. I wanted to add one other verse before we go to our emailers. Yeah. See what they say. Um. One of the things we can be grateful about, we said God is angry. You know, he gets angry uh, with sin and sinners. But but one thing that, that we can be thankful for is that he's not quick to go to that yes. position. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, 
Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 70, uh, uh, Thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. Yeah. Well, we can sure be glad for that. Yes, and I was headed to a New Testament verse that teaches a similar principle towards us. You know, it, it, it is right to be angry about sin at times, but you've got to keep this under control. You know, uh, you can't, uh, so you were rude to me, you, and just, you know, you've got to keep it under control. James chapter 1, verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So we've got to keep this emotion in check. All right. There good. are certain circumstances when uh, anger is justified, uh, but we've got to make sure we keep ourselves under control. Let's look at what some of our emailers said. I've got an email from... Uh Randy in Michigan, he says, yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Paul tells us, Galatians 6, 1, 2, Brethren, if a man be overtaken to fault you, which are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of meekness, considering myself, lest thou also be tempted, bear you one, another, one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When a brother is overtaken to fault, we should help them, not only for their sake, but also for ours, lest we are tempted. If we love brethren, we will do all we can to bring them back or make right, make them right with God. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 18, beginning verse 15, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he hear them not, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Uh, so uh, if you are the one who knows about the sin, then you should do as our Lord Jesus has said. But if everyone knows about about it, then the elders should take care of it. If there are no elders, then the man should take care of it. The men should take care of it. Whatever is done, it should be done. I hope it bring back our brother to the Lord. All right, uh, Mike in Orleans, Indiana says, "Yes, there is clearly righteous anger." In first, in John chapter two, verse fifteen, it describes how Jesus cleansed the temple, driving people out with a whip, pouring out the money changers' money, and overturning tables. Clearly, this was a form of righteous indignation brought about by his zeal for the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, quotes Psalm 4, verse 4, saying, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Thank you, Mike, for that comment. And Chris in Atlanta says, I'm not sure you can be angry at sin. I do know we should be angry, or excuse me, I, knew, I do know we should be willing to lovingly go to the sinner to point out their error. We should not do this with an attitude of superiority or belittle them, but with a caring spirit to encourage them back in a right relationship with God. If we go... With the wrong attitude, then we will be guilty of sin and need to repent. I see so many in the church gossip about someone, shun them, treat them terribly. Instead of going and talking to them, this is heartbreaking to witness. We had a preacher who got the reputation of being liberal. We had a visitor from another congregation misunderstand or simply not or was not simply simply not listening to one of the, his sermons and got the idea he supported having women deacons. He went and spread the word to their congregation. This was a hundred percent not what he taught or even implied, but he was still. But he still has the residual effects of that rumor even years later. All right. So there, there's an example of people not dealing with things as they should. And our Chris from across the pond in the U.K. tonight sends in uh, three verses along this line. As we mentioned two of these already, James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, and Ephesians 4, verse 26. He also references Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that is absolutely true. We can be angry, but we cannot be vengeful. Uh, that is the Lord's business, and we need to leave it to him. All right. All right. So we got that first one out of the way, I think. Yeah, yep. we got two more parts of Stephen's question. What time we got? We've we got to get these in before okay. the break. Okay. 
the second part of Stephen's question was, in Matthew 6, Jesus says to forgive all men their trespasses. There's another passage that indicates that we're not to forgive our brethren unless they've asked for forgiveness. Does this mean we're not to forgive our brethren unless they have asked for forgiveness? Uh, I think probably the verse that, or at least possibly the verse that he's thinking of is in, Matt, in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Take heed to yourselves if your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Um, notice, we're to forgive if our brother repents and seeks our forgiveness. Correct. That's the very way God forgives us. God makes forgiveness available, but he only forgives us when we repent and seek forgiveness. Yes. Meet his conditions for forgiveness. And so, you know, some people, uh, we've talked before, Jacob, on the virtual Bible study. We've done whole programs on forgiveness. I think it's a pretty much misunderstood topic. I, I actually think that technically you can't forgive someone who isn't seeking to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. You can be ready to forgive them. You should be ready to forgive them. You should be looking to help them reach a point where they can be forgiven. But until they've sought it, until they've repented and sought forgiveness, I, I really, if I understand what the scriptures are saying about forgiveness, you really can't forgive someone who hasn't desired Our it. forgiveness is to mirror that of our fathers in heaven, and he does not forgive unless we confess and repent. And so we think that uh, that is uh, the pattern that we see uh, imperative on us uh, to, as well in our forgiveness. Okay, Mike doesn't address that one, so we'll go to Chris in Atlanta. He says, Jesus says to forgive all men their trespasses. Then there's another. Oh, wait, I'm re- repeating the question. Let me read the answer from Chris. This is one of the cases that I have changed my mind on. There was a VBS on this topic, and I had the belief that you should forgive regardless of repentance. Then Greg quoted a scripture that I have read many times, but somehow never connected the dots. Luke 17, 3 through 4, that's what we just read. Yes. states that we are to rebuke an erring brother, and if he repents, forgive him as many times as he's willing to repent. He says, uh, thanks for pointing this out and doing so in a cordial way during that study. One thing I do struggle with and I'm studying is what does it mean to not forgive someone who has not repented? There seems to be a very fine line between holding a grudge uh, with a bitter spirit and simply withholding forgiveness. Maybe you could point me in a direction in this study. Uh, I I would say that, yeah, there is no room for bitterness. Absolutely. Uh, And it is a, I suppose it is a fine line. Not forgiving someone who has not repented. I really, I would really say what we need to, the, the position we need to hold there is a, an absolute readiness, an anxiousness to forgive, and as soon as that person repents and seeks forgiveness, we're there. But that's the way God is. Yeah, the prodigal son and the father in, yeah. in that account. Uh, he was, he was, he was waiting on the day when he could forgive his son and welcome him back. Yeah. All right. So it needs to be our great desire, rather than the bitterness where we hope they never do because we'd like to see them, you know, rot in hell. We are waiting for that day uh, for them uh, to come back. Yeah. Chris in UK has written us a document on this question. All right. Uh, and, and we won't have time to answer it all. He, he mentions Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Actually, he did not write a document on this one. Oh, uh, oh it is, right. No, oh, I see that. You, I see yeah. that. He's got a short answer here. Read yes. that, Jay. Okay. He says, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says to forgive all men their trespasses. Then there's another passage that indicates that we are not to forgive our brethren unless they've asked for forgiveness. I'm sorry, that's the uh, that's the question. Yeah. He says, before we read, uh, before in chapters 5, we read Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift in, there in front of the altar. First go be reconciled to your brother and then come off your, your gift. We there forgive before they say sorry because also, uh, also can someone apologize for something they don't know about? 
so I think maybe he has more of a question there yes. than a comment. I have to look at that, at that a little bit more in depth. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm, he's suggesting that that passage is saying we forgive before they even apologize. Uh, I don't see that. I, I don't Matthew. see that in Matthew 5:23. Uh, my brother has ought against me. In other words, I've done something wrong, and he's upset with me. I go to him seeking his forgiveness because yeah. until I have sought his forgiveness, I can't worship acceptably. So Matthew 5:23 is talking about me. I'm the one who's done the wrong. Yeah. And so I'm when and I know that. And so before I try to worship God, I I need to go and make amends, correct that matter, repent, ask my brother to forgive me, then come and worship God. I think that's what Matthew 5, 23 and 24 is mentioning. All right. And again, we have had whole programs on the subject of forgiveness. It is a very in-depth uh, discussion, and it is a very uh, difficult uh, uh, practice to put into our lives. Uh, it's worth a whole program, and you can find those programs in our archives on forgiveness. And one other note, if we fail to forgive as we should, there will be eternal consequences as we will not be forgiven by God. And well, we need to keep all that in mind. Okay. And one more thing here uh, from Randy in Swartz Creek, Michigan. Uh, in regards to this question, he offers Matthew 18:21 through 35. We won't read all that. He quotes all that. Uh, he, but he says, it may not be easy to do what Jesus tells us to do, but it's always for our good. Let us have compassion and love for our brethren, which is, I believe, certainly true. All right. Kevin in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, uh, gives, tells us uh, this important point. Forgiveness is always available, both from us and from God. It is always available from God, and it should always be available from us. Uh, good comments, Kevin. Thank you. John in Edmond, Oklahoma, find him at scripturalway.org on Tuesday nights at 730. He says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. However, they were not forgiven until they repented on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And that is a common misunderstanding as well. Jesus wasn't granting forgiveness. To when, everyone. when on the cross, he said, yeah. forgive them. They know not what they yeah. do. How did how was that forgiveness accomplished? Well, when the gospel was preached to those same people in Acts 2, and they and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were told, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. They weren't forgiven until they met those terms of condition okay. uh, of forgiveness. All right, the next question I think could take a little bit of time to answer, and we are overdue for a break, so we'll take it now. We'll get your thoughts. The next question that comes from Stephen, is it sinful for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? All right. Give us your thoughts in the chat room. Send I, us an email. Give us a phone call. I could, uh, yes. Yeah, so let's do that. Let's take the, the break, and we'll get your comments in the chat room. Is it sinful for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? Send in your thoughts now. We'll, don't go anywhere. We'll continue right after this. There's more of the virtual Bible study to come after these important messages. Stay tuned. I'm Tom Goodall, a member of College View Church of Christ. Do you have a question about what has been said on the virtual Bible study tonight? Perhaps you disagree with something that was said, or would just like more information about what you've heard. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us with any questions or comments that you might have. Email us at questions at collegeview.com, and we can discuss any of your questions or comments with you privately or over email. Or if you would like to speak with someone in person, call us at 931 381 Our promise to you is that we'll do our very best to give you a Bible answer for anything that we do or teach, and that we will do so in a loving manner. So if you have any questions or comments about our program tonight or any Bible subject, email us at questions at collegeview.com or call 931-381-4567. Thanks for listening to tonight's virtual Bible study, and we hope to hear from you soon. Here's some quotes worth pondering. We evaluate others with a godlike justice, but we want them to evaluate us with a godlike compassion. I value the friend who for me finds time on his calendar, but I cherish the friend who for me does not consult his calendar. 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Don't flatter yourself that friendship authorizes you to say disagreeable things to your intimates. The nearer you come into relation with a person, the more necessary do tact and courtesy become. When a friend is in trouble, don't annoy him by asking if there's anything you can do. Think up something appropriate and do it. Have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Man, I wish I'd said that. See, I told you we'd be back. The virtual Bible study continues. We're back on the program tonight uh, taking various listener questions, and uh, we could potentially squeeze one in from you. If not now, we can do it later. Questions at collegeview.com. The question before the break, is it sinful to marry a non-Christian? All right. Uh, well, there's going to be a verse that I think probably everybody is going to reference, and, and, and it has to be taken into consideration and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I know that, that you will recognize it uh, when I read it here. It says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Yes. And so uh, many think that that would, would, would just absolutely forbid or ban a Christian marrying a non-Christian, uh, and it, and it possibly could. I, I I think it could at times. Uh, you could certainly be unequally yoked to an unbeliever in marriage, but notice it doesn't. It from that verse, it doesn't forbid being yoked with an unbeliever. It forbids being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, yeah. and so I, I think that's that's the possible you know thing that you got to deal with if you're going to use that verse. The context is not talking about marriage, but the statement could have application to marriage. And so uh, I think the, the, the issue you've got to deal with is would it be possible for a believer to be married to an unbeliever and it not be an unequal yoke? I can think of many instances where it is unequal you know, where, and where it affects the bringing down of a believer. Uh, too many times we've known of people who dated and married Christians who dated and married an unbeliever and it led them away and they became unfaithful. In fact, the statistics are pretty staggering along those lines. Uh, so my position would certainly be it's not recommendable. It's, it's not advisable. Right, absolutely uh, not. And, uh, but whether you could use that verse to say it's sinful is where I come up just a little short. The, the problem with it, if it is a sin, how do you repent of it? I think you've made that point in the past as well. Yeah, I, to me, that's the and, and that's the question I've never had answered, uh, to my satisfaction at least. Let's say that, that, that it is against God's law for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, but some, a Christian goes ahead and does it anyway. Yeah. Now what? Yeah. Do they have to divorce? Uh, you know, but that's not a stated exception uh, for divorce. So what do we do if we've got a case like that? Now, it, it's it's sometimes brought out that in First Corinthians seven, Paul describes a situation of believers married to unbelievers. He and, and for instance, he even says in First Corinthians seven fifteen, uh, beginning uh, verse thirteen, First Corinthians seven thirteen. The woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy? Uh, so in that passage, you know, but, but, but the, the comeback, the quibble to that statement is, 
Well, this is describing people who were married to unbelievers. They were married before they obeyed the gospel, before they became Christian. They were married. Well, maybe so, but you can't prove that from the text. Yeah. You know, uh, and so uh, that passage would, would be on the side of it's possible for a Christian to be married to a non-Christian. Right. And, 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 and to argue that this is only describing situations where people were married before they became Christian, one became Christian and the other one didn't, you can't prove that from the text. Right. It, may, it may very well be, but you can't prove that. All right. Uh, all right, let's uh, go to the chat room. The chat room is uh, filling up t- uh, now. If you'd like to join in, it's very easy. Follow the instructions at the bottom of the chat window. Kevin in Arkansas says a g- cer- certain practice or activities might not be sinful yet are not necessarily a good practice, like marrying a non-Christian. It leaves us in a position to be unequally yoked together, and it potentially does, as you mentioned, have the opportunity to put us in an unequally yoked situation. Patrick in Alabama says, in short, no, it isn't sinful in and of itself. However, it is generally a bad idea because an unbelieving spouse can be a cause of temptation which may lead the believing spouse to fall away. Thank you, Patrick, for that. Tim in the chat room says, marrying a non-Christian is not a sin. Perhaps it could lead to that at times if the Christian half gives in on things. And the spirit of compromise would be. Uh, a temptation there yeah. uh, if you're married to someone who does not uh, uh, share the same beliefs as you. And then Patrick also adds, uh, this describes people who are already married. And I think he was okay, talking about First Corinthians 7. Yes, yes, okay. Uh, John uh, appreciates your explanation. Uh, he says they discussed, discussed this a couple weeks back on the truth factor discussion. That's a Wednesday. See. Is it when John's morning. It's Wednesday morning, and John, give us give us yeah. the details in the chat room, I John. I think it's factor. Wednesday morning at uh, 11 o'clock. Okay. Truthfactor.org, I think. It, yes. John, confirm that for us, will you? Yeah. Um, another argument that's made, and and uh, I, I hear this one made from time to time, from 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is arguing in defense of his apostleship. 1 Corinthians 9, 1, am I not an apostle? Uh, am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ? He goes on. He says, uh, "Have we verse four? Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not verse five? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, or I only and Barnabas? Have not we power to forbear working?" In other words, he's saying, "If other if other apostles are allowed to do these things, and I'm I'm an apostle, and I have the same authority that these other apostles had, but the but." That phrase in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, have we not power to lead about a, a sister, a wife, as well as the other apostles? Uh, the argument is made, Paul didn't say, I have the right to have a wife. He, he specified, I have the right to have a wife, a, a sister who is a wife. In other words, a, a believing wife. And I, I think maybe a potential argument can be made there, but I don't think, at least to me, the way that's constructed grammatically is it's not he's not it's not exclusive. You know, uh, I think it's clear Paul wouldn't even consider marrying a a Christian a, a woman who wasn't a Christian, and he's stating it in that fashion. But I don't think that that expression there would preclude all Christians from ever marrying a person who's not a Christian. All right, again, I. I, I I, I just come up short reaching that conclusion, but I want to be perfectly clear that we should encourage our young people constantly to date and marry those of a like precious faith. 
And to do otherwise is extremely dangerous. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't want anything that I that I would say here tonight to be taken as an encouragement no. for someone to go out and you, marry a non-Christian. Right. Never, never. Uh, let's uh, let's go to our, our emailer, said Mike in Orleans, Indiana. It says he believes it is a, a sin. He references the unequally yoked passage of 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 16. I do not believe God wants us to have any union with anything that is in disagreement with him. On the other hand, if one is in a situation where they have been married to a non-Christian who has a right to be married, I do not believe they have a right to divorce uh, simply because they are not a believer. Matthew 19.9 offers only one cause for divorce, fornication, not disbelief. He also references the 1 Corinthians 7 passage that you did, verses 12 and 13, uh, speaking of the, of the spouse who has an unbelieving uh, uh, the person who has an unbelieving spouse. All right, uh, Chris in Atlanta says, it's, is it a sin for Christians to marry non-Christians? Not necessarily, but it's not a good idea. The weaker tends to bring down the stronger. I do thank God that my wife dated me when I was not a Christian. I do not think she would have married me as a non-Christian, but if it had not been for her, her influence, I would not have been introduced to the Lord's Church. After she drugged me to many worship services, I started investigating the claims realized the truth. And that's a, that's a, that's a good story, uh, Chris. And I think what's important there is that she made sure you, have, you were such a character to be able to be reached with the truth and only married you after you had displayed that good character. You know, unfortunately, we see a lot of young ladies in particular who date fellows who have no spiritual interest whatsoever, but they go on and marry them. Oh, uh, well, it'll change yeah, I, 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 I can, yeah, I can change him, you know. Yeah. I'll tell you, if he's not changeable during the courtship phase, he's not going to be changeable during the married phase, yeah. at least not very often. There are, there are a few exceptions to that statement, but the over, the, the, the vast majority of cases is if you if, if he's not reachable while you're dating, he won't be reachable later. All right, Chris in the U.K. has some good comments here. They're lengthy. I'll try and get through them quickly. No, it is not explicitly described as sinful in the Scriptures, but a Christian should not, and I'll add dating or courting as well as that becomes as that comes before, and you should not marry someone you have not dated or courted or, or date or court a marry or marry an unbeliever. So he would go even to it'd be unwise to do to to date an unbeliever. Unfortunately, some he references Second Corinthians six. Unfortunately, some Christians hope that they can convert the person he or she is dating or courting or marrying. They often think that their spirituality is strong enough so that they can witness or motivate the other person to convert uh, through their practice and love. Why do they think this? Three reasons. They love the person and are emotionally blinded. They are naive or they do not know God's word. This may sound harsh, but something as serious as marrying an unbeliever needs to be dealt with properly and to the point. We are not to compromise the will of God and endanger our spiritual well-being. All we need to do is look to the Old Testament and see why God says not to marry unbelievers. This is what God said to the Israelites. He references Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 7 speaks of marrying those who are uh, outside of the, uh, the nation of Israel, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. The reason not to marry an unbeliever is that he or she can influence you away from the Lord. Don't be so naive to think that you will never fall. It happens all the time. If you marry an unbeliever and have children, how will it affect their spirituality to have the parents divided over spiritual things? Is it a help or a hindrance to their spiritual help? Obviously, it is a hindrance. Unfortunately, too many people do not take into account the extremely serious situation of children and their eternal destiny. Yet, because of love and because they listen to their hearts over the Word of God, many people marry unbelievers anyways and often suffer dire consequences thank you for those comments good chris. thoughts chris chris was basically influ- uh, dealing with the inadvisability of, of yeah. dating yeah. and he, he began by saying it is not explicitly sin uh, called out as sinful but he does show reasons why it is a bad idea 
in the chat room, Tim asked, any thoughts on what to do if married when both were, were Christians but later one falls away or goes to another church? Well, obviously, Tim, that would not be a justification for divorce. Uh, it would be a very tough situation. And what you would have to do continually is seek to restore that person to a right relationship right. with God. Uh, very tif- difficult situation, and certainly, it, it, uh, but we we got to say that that would not be reason to divorce uh, at all. Not not authorized. All right. When we get back from the break, we've got some questions that should go a little bit faster. Why is the apocrypha admitted from most Bibles? Has it proven to be uninspired? And then we'll get into the question, is it okay to send your child to a school associated with some denomination? Good questions, and we'll look for your answers. We'll go to the break, get this week's bullet point, and come back on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Wow, it isn't so hard to understand the Bible after all. There's more exciting study and discussion coming after these messages. This is Greg Gwen with this week's bullet point. As we study and discuss the New Testament, there's sometimes a reference made to things that are contained in the original language. Someone will mention that the Greek says this or the Greek says that. It's not a bad thing to try and understand something about the meaning of words as used by the inspired writers, but a couple of warnings are in order. First, there are relatively few real scholars of the Greek language, and there are none who have become such by spending a few hours looking at reference books or following links on the Internet. Not even those who have enrolled in one or two semesters of Greek studies at a college or university are qualified as true experts in this complicated field of study. This being the case, it is highly unlikely, in fact it's effectively impossible, that the average person is going to find some undiscovered nugget of information hiding in the Greek that was never noticed by those who have spent long years of dedicated work studying and learning the language. Once, in discussion of the meaning of certain words in an important New Testament text, one fellow made it a point to emphasize his high marks in two semesters of Greek during his college days. He then proceeded to claim that the established authorities were wrong and that he had a better understanding of what the words meant and how the passage should be translated. There was little use in further discussion because he had, at least in his own mind, settled the matter with some insider knowledge of what was in the Greek. How foolish that was. Additionally, we should never convey the idea that the average person who has never studied Greek is incapable of comprehending the will of God. The truth is that large teams of competent researchers have combined their efforts to produce a number of excellent translations in the English language. Any diligent student today can take these versions and fully understand what God would have him to do. It may very well be, and often is the case, that a guy who couldn't tell an alpha from an omega knows more about the real sense of a Bible text than another fellow who has trouble seeing it from behind his pile of Greek reference books. Any and all efforts to fully understand the inspired word and apply it in our daily lives are commendable, but be cautious about novel interpretations and conclusions that are based upon claims about what is in the Greek. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Rick Harris, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. I hope you'll join me and many others in this weekly Internet Bible study group. Be sure to listen every Thursday night. How about logging off of Facebook and getting into God's book? The virtual Bible study continues. We welcome you back to the program, and we're glad that you're listening. We'll remind you this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us on our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, where you can also find out information about podcasting, recent sermons, Presented at the College U Church of Christ. To find out more at thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And again, that sermon podcast is available with a new sermon every week. Uh, most recently pu- uh, published, uh, Why Are So Many Lost? We looked at the question of God wants everyone to be saved. Why are so many lost? Check out that sermon in our 
sermon podcast at thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We're looking at various listener questions on the program tonight, and Ramona from Texas asked the question, why is the Apocrypha omitted from many Bibles? Has it proven to be uninspired? Good question, Ramona. Thank you for sending that in. Um, and I'm, boy, I printed off a quote, and it's in there in the other room. I didn't, I didn't bring it with me. Uh, I wanted to use that, but I think we can answer this anyway. Okay. Um, did you know that Apocrypha means, you know what it means? No, don't, tell me what it means. The, the Apocrypha, these books are called the Apocrypha. They're included in, for instance, most Catholic Bibles include 14 mm-hmm. books that are identified in, a sec, in, in all of those 14 are identified as the Apocryphal okay. book. That means of doubtful origin, oh. not authoritative, Ooh. of dubious authenticity. Oh. So that should tell you something right there. Uh, they, you hear sometimes about some of these different books. For instance, you hear about First and Second Maccabees. Yes. Uh, that deals with some of the history of the time between the Testaments, between the end of the Old Testament and the start yes. of the New Testament. There is some valuable history there, um, uh, but there are also some errors and, uh, in, for instance, Neil, Lightbook in, in, Neil Lightfoot in his right. book, uh, How We Got the Bible. Small uh, guy. Uh, he says there's no internal or external evidence which would admit these books into the canon of scriptures. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but none of these books exist in that language. Of course, these are all books that would have been in the Old Testament, not in the New. Patrick is in the yeah. chat room. He says there's only seven books in the Apocrypha. Okay. He's a Catholic. He should know. Well, I'm not sure about that. Okay. Uh, um, the Bible claims to be the inspired word of God, but none of the apocryphal writers make that claim. And one of the uh, the author of Second Maccabees openly disclaims inspiration. Hey, Anthony, go in my office and off the printer in there. Uh, pull, get that quote. I want you to read it to us here in a minute. He says uh, he goes on to say the Jews to whom the Old Testament scriptures were immediately directed have never acknowledged the apocrypha as being from God, and it was not part of their Septuagint version. The New Testament does not make even one reference to any apocryphal book, but it makes 263 quotes from and 370 allusions to passages in the Old Testament. Now, that's got to be notable. The the New Testament quotes the books that are in our Old Testament a lot. And, and the makes apocrypha would be associated with the Old Testament, and, not the and New. And should be quoted yeah. if it was regarded as inspired scripture. Okay. What's that quote? How's that quote read there, Anthony? Right. Yeah, it's uh, in, this is uh, from Second Maccabees, right? Right, uh, chapter fifteen, verses thirty-eight and thirty-nine. It says, "So these things being done with relation to Nicanor, and from that time the city being possessed by the Hebrews, I also will here make an end of my narration, which if I have done well, and as it becometh the history, it is what I desired. But if not so perfectly, it must be pardoned me." Now here's here's a here's a right oh, here's the writer yeah. saying. I tried to do the best I could, but now if I've made a mistake here, please excuse me. Does that sound like inspiration? That is not inspiration. That doesn't sound like inspiration, does it? Lightfoot goes on. um, The basic Catholic Bible is the Latin Vulgate translated by Jerome. He called the he's the one who called these books apocryphal, which means of doubtful origin. Uh, So Jerome, uh, who who was principal translator of the Latin Vulgate did not accept these books uh, as inspired. Uh, he says they were rejected by the most eminent of the early writers, such as Origen uh, and Jerome and so forth. Um, he says it should be noted that all these books are in the Old Testament, in the Catholic Bible, but are, we are, of course, not under the, the Old Testament. And so, uh, in, in a sense, that makes it a little less of a significant 
issue to us. All right. We'll look forward to hearing your thoughts in the chat room on that. And our listeners have chimed in from around the world. Uh, we have uh, Mike in Orleans. Uh, again, the term Apocrypha literally means hidden or false. None of the books of the Apocrypha were consi- considered inspired by the early churches. They never quoted from them, and the Jews who had a canonization of their own scriptures did not include them either. They were also written about 300 years after the rest of the scriptures, long after Jude wrote that the faith had been once delivered. Now, is that in agreement with what you said about them being at some of them are in that intertestamental period, or there's that, some that's when they that's the period of time they cover. Okay, but they were written after. I don't know. Oh, I, don't, I, I don't know the date of okay, writing. Okay, I'm not sure on that. Okay. Uh, Ramon, I uh, see. Um, no, this is Chris in Atlanta. He says I've not studied this very much, but from my limited understanding, these books were not accepted by the early church and were not accepted by the Catholic Church until maybe fifth. The 1500s. That's, the, that's the date I'm seeing as well. And he says they were. They also contain doctrines that are in contradiction to other doctrines we have in our Bible. Okay. All right. All right. So and that, uh, well, now this is where we get, I believe, uh, the dissertation from Chris in the UK. On here here the are the books. Scriptures. The books are uh, uh, Chris lists them: First and Second Esdras, Tob- Count these, Jacob. First and Second Esdras, Tobith, Judith, the rest of Esther, the Wisdom of Solomon, Syriac, also titled. Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, the song of the three young men, wow. Susanna, Bell and the dragon, the additions to Daniel, the prayer of Manasseh, and first and second Maccabees. It's more than seven. I think it's 14. I can't count and listen at the same time. One, but... two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Oh, here's the 14, here's the wrinkle. Fifteen, sixteen. I, I found the wrinkle. Okay, what is it? All right, he goes on. If we kept reading, the Protestant Church rejects the Apocrypha as, as being inspired, as do the Jews. But in 1546, the Roman Catholic Church officially declared some of the apocryphal books to be belong in the canon of scriptures. These are Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon, Syrac, also known as Ecclesiasticus, and Baruch. So, so the Catholic Church just accepts those seven. There are other there are other books that are considered apocryphal books, but the Catholic Church has chosen just to accept those seven as being. Inspired. Yeah, okay. okay. That may be the answer. Okay. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that uh, Jesus and the apostles never quoted from those books. Uh, uh, Kevin no, says there's, there's Kevin counts there's 15 on the list. He's got, I guess, uh, if they're of questionable origin and validity, there may be a whole and, lot more. Uh, this is this is where Chris in UK has, has uh, gone to great length, and he's got a tremendously long document here in dealing with this question. Good study. We don't have time to, to dive into all of it, but we appreciate him for all all that he put together on that question. All right. Uh, good. Uh, thank you for that. All right. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on. We have to move on. We're running out of time. The question from Lenora. Is it okay to send your child to a school associated with some denomination? That's a good question. All right. Now, um, that, that, that could that could involve educational institutions at all levels from Kindergarten, even pre-kindergarten, up through high school, and especially into college time. You know, lots of colleges and universities are associated with various uh, right. denominations, but some preparatory schools, right. even elementary schools, are associated with some. And the question would be, what about that? Uh, I want to. I want to state what I think is a first principle. I think there's a difference between buying a service from someone and making a contribution to a cause. Yes. In other words, I, I, for, let, let's say there is this school, and I've got a kindergartner, and I want to send my kindergartner to this school that's run by by some 
religious organization, and I don't agree with that religious organization. I don't agree with the doctrines they teach or how they worship and so forth. I would, I would, I think I would be wrong. To, I, I think it would be a violation of my conscience to make a financial contribution to that denomination when I don't agree with the doctrines that they teach. But I think there's a difference bet- between making a free will contribution and buying a service from such a group. Mm-hmm. Uh, we buy services from people that we don't agree with a lot. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't give them gifts. To further their cause, but we might we might say, I'm paying a fair dollar for the service that they're offering, and therefore I'm willing to pay that. Uh, and so I think I think that has to come into play. I'm you know in regards to schools, I might choose to buy that service from them. They're they're in the business of education, and I'm wanting education for me or my children. I might choose to buy that from them. That would be different for me. Just open up my wallet, and say I want to give you a, you know a hundred dollars to help your cause. Having said that. Okay. There are other, some other considerations you yeah. have to you have exactly. to take into account. Exactly. Ephesians chapter five verse eleven: Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So if your participation, if you if you feel that that would yield uh, some type of fellowship or going along with uh, what is done, then I think you would have to abstain. Yeah. Um, and uh, you also would have to consider uh, what does it do to your influence. And what what about the influence that they will have on my children? That's another one. In other words, uh, is it possible that I'm going to I'm putting my children, for instance, in a dangerous situation where they'll be exposed to things that could yeah. damage their faith. Right. So a lot of questions yeah. I mean, there. Yeah. Is, is, is it going to be, am I going to be more likely to be able to teach them that churches should not be involved in the secular education business if I'm partaking of that secular, you know, if I'm taking advantage of that service? It's a, it's a, it's a question you'll have to ask. Yeah, a judgment call. Judgment my, call. My, Mike uh, makes, in, in Indiana makes this point, although it's no more wrong than allowing them to attend public schools where they can learn a lot of false things, which I think is a great point, yeah. I would be concerned about the spiritual teachings they might encounter and the appearance of endorsing the particular denomination of that school. Uh, but wrong, no, he says. And, you know, it may be more dangerous, and this is all judgment, but it may be more dangerous for a child to be in a so-called religious school than a public school because in a public school, everybody's got their guard up that, you know, there's all kinds of wickedness that's going to be presented. In a so-called religious school, maybe the guard is let down a little bit, and so some of these other ideas can sneak in a little bit. Uh, while we're not on the guard. Chris in Atlanta says this may not be the best idea, but if you're willing to spend time with your kids, discuss what the school's teaching and what the truth is, then it may work out okay. All right. I would say that's true. And uh, Chris in the U.K. passed. Okay. All right. So we got to take our last break, and then we got to rush to the end. we got two questions to go. All right. Why did God create us, Lance asked. Why did he create angels? Why did he create anything? That one might not take as long as you think. And uh, then Chris asked, uh, what about drinking? He says, well, we'll get to that later. Yeah, we'll get to it. We'll get we to got it. to hurry. we got to hurry. Let's take a break. Anthony, get us to a break, and we'll get back and go on the top of the hour right after this. Got a question about something you've heard on the virtual Bible study? Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. We'll be right back after this. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? 
You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects, and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. While 59% of Americans believe in hell, only 32% of adults see hell as an actual place of torment and suffering where people's souls go after death. In contrast, 74% believe in heaven. That information is via the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. Jesus said in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 41, Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. God's Word has the answers. Let's get back to studying it. The virtual Bible study rolls along. All right, we're rolling along to the top of the hour. We're going fast as we talk about a couple more questions. One from Lance. Why did God create us, angels, or anything? I just got one verse that I would offer on that. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. I think that expression, he wanted to bring many sons to glory, maybe the answer to that question. Why did he create, why did he create things? So that he could bring many sons to glory. I would offer that as at least a partial answer to the question. No, let's see what our well, emailers said. All right, let's see what they say. Uh, we have uh, Mike in Orleans. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. I that's guess what, Mike would that. say, keep your head down and keep on uh, doing what God said, and we'll worry about that uh, later. And Chris in Atlanta did not uh, deal with that. Uh, Chris in the U.K. Now, this, this looks like a very long question, too. He, he asked, was it to satisfy a hidden need in him? Was it because God was just bored hanging around forever in empty space doing nothing? Maybe it was because he just curious and wanted to know what would happen if he made a bunch of people and put them on a planet in the middle of nowhere. The Bible doesn't specifically say why God made us, but it does say that he created us. Uh, and Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. <clears throat> uh I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot. He, he's got a lot of wow. questions there, but I but I think he agrees that there's not a, a definitive answer to that question. All right. Uh, so we'll just leave it at that. Okay. And, good. Then, and then quickly with how much time? Oh, we just got less than ten minutes left. We got to go to this last question, which actually comes from Chris in the UK. Okay. He's he's answered a lot of our questions tonight. He's a very and, faithful correspondent. We yeah. can't we try our best to get his comments included, but he always uh, provides us with. More material we can include, but he has a good question. Yeah, the, the question is, he says, I'm absolutely against drinking even casually, but with the state of water purity, surely the disciples drank vinegar or wine to avoid infection and as per Paul's recommendation to Timothy. He says, the grape on its skin grows a chemical which instantly ferments the juice to wine. 
So he asked, how, how is there a difference between bread, You know, juice when I saw that wine. question come across, I looked that up, and it does, yeast does occur on the, on the, on skin, the skin of grape. Of the, the skin of the grape. Here's but how it works. doesn't, it is not so pervasive that as soon as you squeeze the not juice out, oh, I got wine out of that. It's not instantaneous. Okay. In fact, you've got to work a controlled situation to make wine instead of vinegar mm-hmm. or some, some spoiled substance. Great, if you just squeezed a grape and left it, left it in a cup sitting there on the table, it would not turn into wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a process you got. Here's, here's the way, uh, and I'm taking this from a, a book on the subject. Grape juice composes principally of sugar and gluten. The decay of gluten affords the necessary conditions for reception and growth of yeast germs. And so, uh, Anthony, you might be up on this. Does that sound uh, right? Or Anthony? Yeah, I was going to say. The, the yeah, Anthony's a biologist. He's also <laughs> a great baker. Uh, yeah, yeast. Uh, yeah, the yeast is on the outside of the grapes, and it it converts the sugar to alcohol and carbon dioxide right. in, in, in the, the right environment. Right. In, in the Primarily, presence of yeast, yeah. sugar is converted to alcohol. So, right. the, but the yeast has to have a place to grow. And the decay of the gluten is what provides the environment for the yeast to grow. And then the yeast works on the sugar in the grape to convert it uh, into alcohol. Is this plausible, Anthony? You, Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I was just saying I, I don't I – t- um, the statement that it happens instantly is definitely not – doesn't line up, I don't think, with the, uh, with the science. Okay. All right, we've, but, but men a long time ago, men discovered these properties, and they were very clever in devising means to prevent, uh, to work with the particular properties and prevent fermentation. And that's one of the that's that's sort of the essence of Chris's question, and that is a misunderstanding in this whole discussion is that in the Old Testament times you couldn't do anything to avoid having alcohol. I hear alcoholic that all the wine. time. I hear that all the time. They, there was no way to keep the grape juice from fermenting into wine, and that is simply not true. Right. I've got a list here of five, at least five different methods that were used to prevent grape mm-hmm. juice from fermenting into wine. One was gluten separation. As we said, the, the decay of the gluten provides the, the, the environment for yeast to grow, and then the yeast converts the sugar to wine. Uh, or alcohol, rather, gluten's found in the lining of the skin and in the envelope of the seeds. Careful extraction of the juice could allow for what the ancients called sweet wine to be captured without disturbing the gluten. Even after the grapes had been pressed or trodden, the gluten was concentrated in the pulp, which could be removed by filtration. Mm -hmm. So if you get the gluten away, the yeast doesn't have any place to grow, therefore it can't work on the sugar, you can keep you can keep fermentation from happening. Okay. So gluten separation, one method. Moisture removal was a common means. Moisture is essential to fermentation. And so what they would do was dry the grapes whole. And then later when they wanted juice, they would rehydrate the, the grapes and make juice then and use it then. Okay. No fermentation would take place. But one of the, the maybe the most common way they did it was to boil the grape juice, the, the fresh grape juice. They would boil it down into a syrup. Yeah. Uh, very successful mm-hmm. in keeping fermentation from happening. They, in other words, they removed the moisture and they, they, they boiled down the grape juice into a syrup. Then later, months later, they could come back and add water to the syrup and make grape juice. Yeah. Uh, air exclusion. You got to have air uh, for the yeast to work on the the sugar, and if you exclude the air, 
you can keep fermentation from happening. It is known historically that the ancients would bury vessels in the earth or sink them, sink jars of grape juice in water to keep the oxygen away from the juice, keep it from fermenting. You could reduce the temperature. Another way is to reduce the temperature, and they often use cold springs and natural cold weather to keep grape juice from fermenting. And then there were other things like sulfur fumigation, uh, which would ex- another means of excluding the oxygen. And sometimes in, in ancient documents it talks about smoked wines, which would have come from that kind of a process. And I don't think that I – mean, my guess would be that grape juice at certain times of the year would have been a very precious commodity and not something – it's not like they were drinking grape juice all the, all the time and they had to have some way – I'm sure there were certain times of the year where you could. It was hard to find grape juice. It would be, these ways of preserving it would made it not so common as it is today. Maybe so. But uh, Chris is right when he says that Paul did encourage Timothy in First Timothy 5:23, "Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities." Now we don't know whether the wine he was encouraging him to drink there was unfermented grape juice or alcoholic grape juice wine as we would call it, because in the Bible, the word wine can mean either one. You have to let the context determine. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, what that proves is that it was not Timothy's common practice to participate in that. Yeah. Normally, he didn't drink any Because Paul had to tell him to. If he had been drinking some with his dinner every night, then that that would have been a a worthless instruction. Real quickly, we're going to run. Oh, man, we're almost out of time. Uh, Mike uh, says uh, uh, drunkenness seems to be the condemnation in scriptures, the drinking of alcoholic beverage for pleasure. Alcoholic beverage is permissible in cases where it is medicinally necessary. And he references First Timothy 5.23. But he says the fact that Paul had to instruct Timothy to drink wine and no longer water alone is a strong indication that it was not Timothy's normal practice to drink wine. I think you're right, Mike. All right. And we have uh, Chris in Atlanta who says, I'm not aware of a chemical process that ferments the grape instantly. I do know that wine is used in Scripture to refer to alcoholic beverages as well as non-alcoholic grape juice. Thank you, Chris. And Chris in UK who sent in the questions, uh, uh, he says it's significant the real wine, that real wine should and not grape juice, for example. The use of grape juice at Holy Communion in lieu of wine is a product of Victorian prudishness and of the 19th century American temperance movement. You know, I, I would actually disagree with you there on that, Chris. Uh, the argument is made. I think it is a worthy argument. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover week. He was a faithful Jew observing all, all parts of the Old Testament law of Moses. Now, wine is the product of a yeast process but yeast mm-hmm. was specifically excluded in Jewish households by law during the Passover week. Mm-hmm. And so some argue, and I think it may be a worthy argument, perhaps check check on it more, see what you think. But the fact that that yeast and, and leavening agents were not to be even present in the house during the Passover week for the Jews mm-hmm. would probably be a good indication that the juice that Jesus used he didn't call it wine. He called it the fruit of the vine. Was more than likely not fermented. I would argue that there's uh, every indication that it would not have been fermented. Well, uh, it's interesting. Did you, you want to continue with, uh, with these? Uh, we, we really don't have a lot of time. But he says uh, uh, he says uh, the use of grape juice in Christian worship is lamentable consequence of 19th century American entrepreneurial marketing 
in event, uh, marketing inventiveness. In other words, we figured out how to make grape juice, and great American Christians were sold a bill of goods by the captains of American commerce. I never heard that. That's, I think that may be a stretch. I don't think that's a verifiable claim. He says to say grape juice would be impossible to produce, much less to market, were it not for the then recently discovered process of pasteurization. Grapes left to themselves will ferment. It's precisely the potency of the fermentation process that gives wine its powers of signing Christian worship. I think you're wrong, Chris, and I think we've given the documentation that grapes left to themselves, will they will not ferment. The juice will spoil, but it will not ferment, and you can prevent fermentation. Uh, Luther, he says, pointed out that in the Eucharist you're offered the same wine that you can get drunk with under other circumstances. That may be the case. The Catholic practice is is to use fermented wine, I'm sure. And yes, and perhaps you could drink enough to get drunk on that, but that doesn't prove the point. Uh, he says, grape juice is void of any of the sense of exuberant joy and celebration that we've come to associate with wine. Christians have used real wine in worship among other reasons, for its association with joy and festivity of celebration. Maybe so, but that's not a biblical proof. Um, I'm going to have to cut you off. Okay. He he says, my best advice, encourage worshipers to recall that the total Christ is present in either sign. It's called so-called doctrine of concomitance. It will be sufficient, that is, for you to receive either bread or cup alone. Uh, I don't know. Uh, He said, a final argument for the use of wine is the transcultural. It is wine that connects contemporary Americans, uh, contemporary Christians with Christians of other times and places. That's not a Bible argument either. i got to disagree with you, Chris. I respectfully disagree. I I think we can prove that they could preserve unfermented grape juice in first century times, and I believe they did. All right. Uh, We appreciate uh, all of our listeners. And uh, if you'd like more information on the alcohol question, I'd refer you to our archives. August 17th. 2016, can a Christian drink alcohol? I think we'll present our side of uh, the argument and where you can learn uh, our beliefs on the practice based upon our understanding of the scriptures. Dad, a good discussion tonight. Thank you for ever, all the questions from our listeners, and uh, we need some more. Yeah, we're always open to your questions. Send them in, questions at collegeview.com. All right. Anthony, great job behind the controls. Any final thoughts? Uh, nope. I, it was a good program tonight and lots of good information. And so. we did make it through. We did. Now that I'm very impressed That is with. impressive. All right. Well, We're a little you. over time, but we made it through. Dad, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word in the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.